Section four of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter two of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy. Part two by Ida L. Pfeiffer. The beautiful mosques with their graceful minarets, the palaces and harems, kiosks and great barracks, the gardens, shrubberies, and cypress woods, the gaily painted houses, among which single cypresses often rear their slender heads, these, together with the immense forest of masts, combine to form an indescribably striking spectacle. When the bustle of life began, on the shore and on the sea, my eyes scarcely sufficed to take in all I saw. The golden horn became gradually covered, as far as the eye could reach, with countless multitude of cakes. The restless turmoil of life on shore, the passing to and fro of men of all nations and colors, from the pale inhabitant of Europe to the blackest Ethiopian, the combination of varied and characteristic costumes, this and much more which I cannot describe, held me spellbound to the deck. The hours flew past like minutes, and even the time of debarkation came much too early for me, although I had stood on deck and gazed from three o'clock until eight. I found myself richly repaid for all the toils of my journey, and rejoiced in the sight of these wonderful eastern pictures. I could only wish I were a poet, that I might fitly portray the magnificent gorgeousness of the sight. To land at Topona, and to be immediately surrounded by hired servants and hammocks, porters, is the fate of every traveller. The stranger is no longer master either of his will or his luggage. One man praises this inn, the other that. The porters hustle and beat each other for your effects, so that the custom-house officers frequently come forward with their sticks to restore order. The boxes are then searched, a ceremony which can, however, be considerably accelerated by a fee of from ten to twenty kreutzers. It is very advisable to fix on an hotel before leaving the boat. There are always passengers on board who are resident at Constantinople, or at least know the town well, and who are polite enough to give advice on the subject to strangers. By this means you rid yourself at once of the greedy servants, and need only tell a porter the name of your inn. The inns for the Franks, a term used in the East to designate all Europeans, are in Para. I stayed at the hotel of Madame Balbiani, a widow lady, in whose house the guests are made comfortable in every respect. Clean rooms, with a beautiful view towards the sea, healthy, well-selected and palatable fare, and good prompt attendance are advantages which every one values, and all these are found at Madame Balbiani's, besides constant readiness to oblige on the part of the hostess and her family. The good lady took quite a warm interest in me, and I can say without hesitation that had not my good fortune led me under her roof, I should have been badly off. I had several letters of introduction, but not being fortunate enough to travel in great pomp or with a great name, my countrymen did not consider it worth while to trouble themselves about me. I am ashamed for their sakes to be obliged to make this confession but, as I have resolved to narrate circumstantially not only all I saw, but all that happened to me on this journey, I must note down this circumstance with the rest. 
I felt the more deeply the kindness of these strangers, who, without recommendation or the tie of country, took so hearty an interest in the well-being of a lonely woman. I am truly rejoiced when an opportunity occurs of expressing my sincere gratitude for the agreeable hours I spent among them. The distance from Vienna to Constantinople is about one thousand sea miles. I arrived at Constantinople on a Tuesday, and immediately inquired what was worth seeing. I was advised to go and see the dancing dervishes, as this was the day on which they held their religious exercises in Para. As I reached the mosque an hour too soon, I betook myself in the meantime to the adjoining gardens, which is set apart as the place of meeting of the Turkish women. Here several hundred ladies reclined on the grass in varied groups, surrounded by their children and their nurses, the latter of whom are all negresses. Many of these Turkish women were smoking pipes of tobacco with an appearance of extreme enjoyment, and drinking small cups of coffee without milk. Two or three friends often made use of the same pipe, which was passed round from mouth to mouth. These ladies seemed also to be partial to dainties. Most of them were well provided with raisins, figs, sugared nuts, cakes, etc., and ate as much as the little ones. They seemed to treat their slaves very kindly. The black servants sat among their mistresses, and munched away bravely. The slaves are well dressed, and could scarcely be distinguished from their owners, were it not for their sable hue. During my whole journey I remarked with pleasure that the lot of a slave in the house of a Mussulman is not nearly so hard as we believe. The Turkish women are no great admirers of animated conversations. Still, there was more talking in their societies than the assemblies of the men, who sit silent and half asleep in the coffee-houses, languidly listening to the narrations of a story-teller. The ladies' garden resembles a churchyard. Funeral monuments peer forth at intervals between the cypresses, beneath which the visitors sit talking and joking cheerfully. Every now and then one would suddenly start up, spread a carpet beside her companions, and kneel down to perform her devotions. As no one of the male sex was allowed to be present, all were unveiled. I noticed many pretty faces among them, but not a single instance of rare or striking beauty. Fancy large, brilliant eyes, pale cheeks, broad faces, and an occasional tendency to corpulence, and you have the lady's portrait. Smallpox must still be rather prevalent in these parts, for I saw marks of it on many faces. The Turkish lady's costume is not very tasteful. When they go abroad, they are completely swathed in an upper garment, generally made of dark merino. In the harem, or in any place where men are not admitted, they doff this garment, and also the white cloth in which they wrap their heads and faces. Their costume consists, properly speaking, of very wide trousers drawn together below the ankle, a petticoat with large wide sleeves, and a broad sash round the waist. Over this sash some wear a captain, others only a spencer, generally of silk. On their feet they wear delicate boots, and over these slippers of yellow morocco, on their heads a small fez cap, from beneath which their hair falls on their shoulders in a number of thin plates. Those Turks, male and female, who are descended from Mohammed, have either a green kaftan or a green turban. This color is here held so sacred that scarcely any one may wear it. 
I would even advise the Franks to avoid green in their dresses, as they may expose themselves to annoyance by using it. After I had more than an hour's leisure to notice all these circumstances, a noise suddenly arose in the courtyard, which produced a stir among the women. I considered from these appearances that it was time to go to the temple, and hastened to join my party. A great crowd was waiting in the courtyard, for the sultan was expected. I was glad to have the good fortune to behold him on the very day of my arrival. As a stranger I was allowed without opposition a place in the front ranks, a trait of good breeding on the part of the Turks, which many a Frank would do well to imitate. In a Turk, moreover, this politeness is doubly praiseworthy, from the fact that he looks upon my poor sex with great disrespect. Indeed, according to his creed, we have not even a soul. I had only stood a few moments when the Sultan appeared on horseback, surrounded by his train. He alone rode into the courtyard, the others all dismounted at the gate, and entered on foot. The horse on which the Sultan rode was of rare beauty, and, as they told me, of the true Arabian breed. The saddle-cloth was richly embroidered with gold, and the stirrups of the same precious metal were in the form of shoes, covered with the finest chaste work. The Sultan is a slender, slim-looking youth of nineteen years of age, and looks pale, languid, and blasé. His features are agreeable, and his eyes fine. If he had not abandoned himself at so early an age to all the pleasures of the senses, he would no doubt have grown up a stalwart man. He wore a long cape of dark blue cloth, and a high fez cap, with a heron's plume and a diamond clasp decking his head. The greeting of the people, and the Sultan's mode of acknowledging it, is exactly as at Vienna, except that here the people at intervals raise a low cry of welcome. As soon as the Sultan had entered the temple, all flocked in. The men and the Franks, the latter without distinction of sex, sit or stand in the body of the temple. The Turkish women sit in galleries, behind such closed wire gratings that they are completely hidden. The temple, or more properly the hall, is of inconsiderable size, and the spectators are only separated from the priests by a low railing. At two o'clock the dervishes appeared, clad in long petticoats with innumerable folds which reached to their heels. Their heads were covered with high pointed hats of white felt. They spread out carpets and skins of beasts, and began their ceremonies with a great bowing and kissing of the ground. At length the music struck up, but I do not remember ever to have heard a performance so utterly horrible. The instruments were a child's drum, a shepherd's pipe, and a miserable fiddle. Several voices set up a squeaking and whining accompaniment, with an utter disregard of time and tune. Twelve dervishes now began their dance. If, indeed, a turning round in a circle, while their full dresses spread around them like a large wheel, can be called by such a name. They display much address in avoiding each other, and never come in contact, though their stage is very small. I did not notice any convulsions, of which I had read in many descriptions. The ceremony ended at three o'clock. The sultan once more mounted his horse, and departed with his train and the eunuchs. In the course of the day I saw him again, as he was returning from visiting the medical faculty. It is not difficult to get a sight of the sultan. He generally appears in public on Tuesdays, and always on Fridays, the holiday of the Turks. 
The train of the young autocrat presents a more imposing appearance when he goes by water to visit a mosque, which he generally does on every Friday. Only two hours before he starts it is announced in which mosque he intends to appear. At twelve, at noon, the procession moves forward. For this purpose two beautiful barges are in readiness, painted white, and covered with gilded carvings. Each barge is surmounted by a splendid canopy of dark red velvet, richly bordered with gold fringe and tassels. The floor is spread with beautiful carpets. The rowers are strong, handsome youths, clad in short trousers and jackets of white silk, with fez caps on their heads. On each side of the ship there are fourteen of these rowers, under whose vigorous exertions the barge flies forward over wave and billow like a dolphin. The beautifully regular movements of the sailors have a fine effect. The oars all dip into the water with one stroke. The rowers rise as one man, and fall back into their places in the same perfect time. A number of elegant barges and kikes follow the procession. The flags of the Turkish fleet and merchant ships are hoisted, and twenty-one cannons thunder forth a salutation to the sultan. He does not stay long in the mosque, and usually proceeds to visit a barrack or some other public building. When the monarch goes by water to the mosque, he generally returns also in his barge. If he goes by land, he returns in the same manner. The most popular walks in Pera are the Great and Little Campo, which may be termed burying places in cypress groves. It is a peculiar custom of the Turks, which we hardly find among any other nation, that all their feasts, walks, business transactions, and even their dwellings are in the midst of graves. Everywhere, in Constantinople, Pera, Galata, etc., one can scarcely walk a few paces without passing several graves surrounded by cypresses. We wander continually between the living and the dead, but within four and twenty hours I was quite reconciled to the circumstance. During the night-time I could pass the graves with as little dread as if I were walking among the houses of the living. Seen from a distance, these numerous cypress woods give to the town a peculiar fairy-like appearance. I can think of nothing which I can compare it. Everywhere the tall trees appear, but the tombs are mostly hidden from view. It took a longer time before I could accustom myself to the multitude of ownerless dogs, which the stranger encounters at all corners, in every square and every street. They are of a peculiarly hideous breed, closely resembling the jackal. During the daytime they are not obnoxious, being generally contented enough if they are allowed to sleep undisturbed in the sun, and to devour their prey in peace. But at night they are not so quiet. They bark and howl incessantly at each other, as well as at the passers-by, but do not venture an attack, particularly if you are accompanied by a servant carrying a lantern and a stick. Among themselves they frequently have quarrels and fights, in which they sometimes lose their lives. They are extremely jealous if a strange dog approaches their territory, namely, the street or square of which they have possession. On such an intruder they all fall tooth and nail, and worry him until he either seeks safety in flight or remains dead on the spot. It is therefore a rare circumstance for any person to have a house-dog with him on the streets. It would be necessary to carry the creature continually, and even then a number of these unbidden guests would follow, barking and howling incessantly. Neither distemper nor madness is to be feared from these dogs, 
though no one cares for their wants. They live on carrion and offal, which is to be found in abundance in every street, as every description of filth is thrown out of the houses into the road. A few years ago it was considered expedient to banish these dogs from Constantinople. They were transported to two uninhabited islands in the Sea of Marmora, the males to one and the females to another. But dirt and filth increased in the city to such a degree that people were glad to have them back again. The town is not lighted. Every person who goes abroad at night must take a lantern with him. If he is caught wandering without a lantern by the guard, he is taken off without mercy to the nearest watch-house, where he must pass the night. The gates of the city are shut after sunset. In proportion as I was charmed with the beautiful situation of Constantinople, so I was disgusted with the dirt and the offensive atmosphere which prevail everywhere, the ugly narrow streets, the continual necessity to climb up and down steep places in the badly paved roads, soon rendered the stranger weary of a residence in this city. Worse than all is the continual dread of conflagration in which we live. Large chests and baskets are kept in readiness in every house. If a fire breaks out in the neighborhood, all valuable articles are rapidly thrown into these and conveyed away. It is customary to make a kind of contract with two or three Turks, who are pledged, in consideration of a trifling monthly stipend, to appear in the hour of danger, for the purpose of carrying the boxes and lending a helping hand wherever they can. It is safer by far to reckon on the honesty of the Turks than on all of the Christians and Greeks. Instances in which a Turk has appropriated any portion of the goods entrusted to his care are said to be of very rare occurrence. During the first nights of my stay I was alarmed at every noise, particularly when the watchman, who paraded the streets, happened to strike with his stick upon the stones. In the event of a conflagration, he must knock at every house-door and cry, Fire! Fire! Heaven be praised, my fears were never realized. End of section 4